Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Gracias a, a toda España porque hemos demostrado al mundo que somos una democracia fuerte. Le pido al Partido Socialista expresamente y al resto de las fuerzas políticas que no bloqueen el gobierno de España una vez más. Spain has voted and the results are in. Today on EU Confidential, we analyze what the election outcome means for the country and the European Union. Also in this episode, we're joined by Andrew Caruna Galizia. He's the son of Maltese journalist Daphne Caruna Galizia, who was killed in 2017 by a car bomb, an assassination that shocked Malta and the wider world. At the time of her death, Daphne was facing dozens of lawsuits related to her work as a journalist. Since then, the EU has come forward with a proposal targeting so-called slaps, they're strategic lawsuits against public participation, lawsuits that often target journalists and civil society activists. But many believe the EU's efforts are at risk of being watered down. Today, Andrew explains why. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Politico's Chief Brussels Correspondent, and we'll kick off today's episode with our colleague, Aitor Hernández Morales, who has just returned from Spain. Hi there, Aitor. Hi, Suzanne. Great to have you here in studio. So, for listeners who haven't been maybe tuning into this, what were the results of this election? It took place on Sunday, very closely watched. What was the outcome? Well, the, the short answer is that it is an inconclusive outcome. We already knew going into this election that none of the parties would be able to score a governing majority on their own. What was expected was that the uh, center-right popular party would score the most votes. And overall, there was the belief that they would be able to secure a number of seats in the parliament to be able to form a majority coalition government with the far-right Vox party. Now, what actually happened was very different. So uh, what we saw was that the popular party did score the most votes, but substantially less than uh, were expected. And so instead of securing 160 seats in this parliament of 350 MPs, they only have 136. Since Vox only has 33 MPs, they don't reach the 176 margin for an absolute majority government. And what that means in practice is they don't really have a viable path to form a government. 
So, I mean, Pedro Sanchez remained Prime Minister for the moment. Look, he called a snap election after his own party did very badly in regional elections earlier in the year. And has his gamble paid off? I think we can absolutely refer to Pedro Sanchez as the uh, perennial comeback kid. This is a man who in 2016 was kicked out of being leader of the Socialist Party, became leader of the Socialist Party again, led Spain's first uh, confidence vote against Mariano Rajoy, got him kicked out, became prime minister, formed Spain's first coalition government in 2019, and now going into these elections where everyone thought his political career was over and that he would be coming up to NATO or some other position abroad. Instead, he is definitely going to remain prime minister until the end of the year and possibly longer. So what went wrong for the PP, that main centre-right party? Um, We were recording from there a few weeks ago, our listeners will remember from Spain, and there was a sense in the air, we were talking to voters who'd, you know, become disenchanted with the left, and there was a sense that it was going to go to the right. I mean, what went wrong for them? Uh, They had a disastrous final week of the campaign. So if you look at the polls from the Sunday before the election was held, the popular party was very much on track to secure its 160 seats. It looked pretty clear that they would have the numbers to form that uh, majority coalition government with Vox. Now, a key thing that we have to keep in mind is that in Spain, it is illegal to publish polling surveys in the five days prior to the election. So it kind of became this blank area where no one was getting updated information. And that coincided with a series of campaign disasters for the popular party candidate, Alberto Núñez Feijó. That started out on Monday with a very bad interview on Spanish public television where he was challenged on several uh, statements that he made. He claimed that his party had always raised pensions. That wasn't true, and he wasn't able to uh, explain why he was lying about this. Then he was also challenged on the Pegasus spyware uh, scandal. So as our readers may know, um, Pedro Sanchez's government was affected by that spying, and there has been an ongoing investigation into it. Feijo claimed that Sanchez had quashed the investigation, when in truth what happened was that that investigation collapsed because Israel refused to collaborate. Uh, When he was challenged on this, he insisted that it was true. The journalist from Spanish public television brought out papers showing that it was not true. Then he claimed he had read it in a newspaper. And when she challenged him to name that newspaper, he was unable to do so. So he came out as a, uh, you know, as, as someone who wasn't particularly trustworthy. And then the following day, we reported on a relationship that he has with a Galician drug trafficker. So uh, the key thing to keep in mind there is that this story was not new. It was originally reported by El País back in 2013. And what they secured were pictures from the 90s that showed Feijo vacationing with Galician drug dealer Marcial Dorado. In particular, they were pictured, you know, very cozy on a yacht. Uh, It almost appeared as if the drug dealer had put uh, sunscreen on Feijo. So following the publication of these pictures, again, over a decade ago, Journalists were able to prove that these men had traveled together, gone on vacation to Andorra, to Portugal. And Feijo had never been able to explain this friendship with this character. We were very surprised that this hadn't come up during the campaign. And it kept not coming up until last Sunday when the uh, far-left candidate, Yolanda Diaz, casually mentioned it in a campaign rally in Madrid. No one really picked up on it, but I, I happened to be there. And so I wrote it up. It was published in Politico. And I think we raised very, very rational questions, which were simply, why is it that this man has still not explained this very strange relationship? And it was as a result of Politico's coverage that the Spanish media refocused their attention on this issue. You had uh, Deputy Prime Minister Nadia Calviño start saying in rallies and, and interviews where she she said, 
how embarrassing Ursula von der Leyen now knows that Alberto Núñez Feijó pals around with drug traffickers. This came up in debates, and it really centered the attention on uh, this problematic link between the two men, a link which Feijó continues to not be able to explain to this day. Fascinating the way that a story like this can come, you know, resurface at this time, thanks to reporting by yourself and then being picked up and just not what you want in the final week of a campaign. Indeed. I mean, one other um, theme we were picking up in Spain a few weeks ago was the fact that Sanchez was hammering home the possible tie up between the PP and the far right. Do you think that put off some voters? That worked, in other words. They kind of shunned the far right and the PP was punished by this expectation that they would be prepared to go into government with them. Absolutely. Sanchez's gamble from the beginning was to call elections at a point where Spanish voters would be going to the polls at the same time that the popular party and Vox were forming uh, coalition governments at the local and regional level as a result of the of the rather disastrous uh, May 28th elections where the socialists lost across the country. And I believe that gamble paid off because in the weeks leading up to this election, uh, voters were able to see how, for example, in the Valencia region, the new popular party in Vox government is getting rid of the departments that uh, address violence against women and equality. Meanwhile, in some towns, the coalition governments formed by these two parties have banned, for example, rainbow flags. Uh, they've also banned plays by Virginia Woolf. They've banned plays by a Baroque Spanish uh, playwright, Lope de Vega, because they considered that they were too subversive. So I think all of these issues really brought all of the problematic sides of that uh, coalition government to the forefront. It should be noted that uh, Vox performed according to expectation, which is a really remarkable thing. So when we see the final number of seats that Vox got, they are more or less in line with what polling data said on Sunday. But certainly the fear of the far right motivated the left to come out. And that's a really important part of these results. What we saw were 70% of Spanish voters coming out and voting in the middle of their summer vacation, which is very admirable. And then the other big takeaway, I would say, is the insane success that they had with mail-in voting. So uh, Spain broke a record. 7% of the registered electorate voted by mail. And uh, that certainly made a difference here. And interesting here in Brussels, we were gauging reaction this week and there really was a sigh of relief that this, you know, surge to the far right in particular did not happen. And of course, we've been reporting here about this kind of drift to the right among countries throughout Europe does not seem to have happened in Spain, as had been predicted. Finally, just talk us through what happens next. Okay, so right now it is a very difficult uh, situation, but the only candidate that has a potential path to becoming prime minister is Pedro Sanchez. This is not going to be easy at all. On August 17th, Parliament will reconvene. A few days later, the King of Spain will start calling group leaders over to Sarsuela Palace to quiz them on who he thinks should be his candidate for prime minister. What we expect is that most of the party leaders will say that they think Sanchez has the greatest amount of possibility and that the king will therefore order Sanchez to attempt to form a government. How this will play out is that after several weeks of negotiations, Sanchez will give a speech explaining why he should be prime minister, and then the parliament will vote. The first vote he will almost certainly lose because he would need 176 votes in favor of his candidacy, and it doesn't look like he has those numbers. Once that vote officially ends, so once he fails, a two-month clock starts ticking. And at the end of those two months, if Spain does not have a winning prime ministerial candidate, parliament is dissolved and we go to new elections. But 48 hours after that first vote, 
what we have is a second vote where you can become prime minister by simple majority. That sounds easier than you would think because you think, okay, more yeas than nays, but MPs can also abstain. So Sanchez's calculation right now involves the 100 and I believe 152 uh, MPs that his socialist party and the left-wing Sumar party control, plus a series of separatist parties. All of those parties would have to vote in favor of his government, which is not an easy task. And then he has to convince the Catalan separatist party, Junts per Catalunya, to not vote against him. And that's actually going to be the hardest part. Why? Because Junts' founder is one Carlos Puigdemont, the former president of the Catalonia region, the man who fled Spain in 2017 after holding the illegal independence referendum, and who has been you know, living amongst us here in Brussels since then in self-imposed exile and is a member of the European Parliament. He just lost his immunity, and the Spanish judiciary wants to extradite him. Obviously, if he is extradited or if he is arrested, that will make it extremely difficult for Junts to... Sanchez doesn't even need their support. He needs them to abstain. It's very difficult that Junts will abstain if uh, their founder ends up being extradited and put in a Spanish jail. They are asking for uh, Sanchez to declare a blanket amnesty, and they're also asking Sanchez to commit to holding a new referendum they will not do either one of these things. It's it's constitutionally impossible for the socialists to do it. So he's going to have to try to sway them with some other some other goodie. Dramatic stuff. I mean, for the moment, though, he's in situ. And of course, as we know, Spain holds the rotation council of the presidency. So in that sense, things, business will continue as usual, we're told here in Brussels. Aitor, thank you so much for joining us here in the studio and bringing us up to date with those results of the Spanish election. Muchísimas gracias. Coming up is our conversation with Andrew Karuna Galizia, the son of Maltese journalist Daphne Karuna Galizia, who was killed in a car bomb in 2017. We'll hear more about his concerns about a new EU law that aims to target the kind of lawsuits that were brought against his mother related to her work as a journalist. Stay with us. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Can you start by telling us a bit about your mother? My mother, Daphne, was, by the time of her death in 2017, she was Malta's most famous journalist, and she, she also had a prominent profile in Europe and in some parts of the world world as well, thanks largely to her Panama Papers reporting. So she was Malta's first 
woman columnist. She started writing when she was about 25 years old for Malta's largest newspaper. And she was the first columnist to actually put her name on her columns. And so very soon after she started writing, people would begin to recognize her in the street. Um, even as children, me and my brothers would hear strangers talking about her and her, her latest column. And so for about 30 years, she was mainly known for her Sunday column. But from about 2013 onwards, she began to investigate high-level corruption in the Maltese government. Because she was a household name, she was trusted by sources. So if a source within government, for example, had highly sensitive information, they were often very reluctant to give it to a newspaper. With my mother, they knew they were going to a single individual and that the information would stay with her. So she very quickly developed this incredible network of, of sources across the Maltese administration, but also beyond. Malta, its economy had began to develop into new sectors that were very transnational in nature, like online gambling, passport sales, large procurement projects, which attracted international bidders and so on. So my mother's work quickly became interesting for readers also beyond Malta. But that also links to our conversation today because some of the legal threats she began to face also began to originate from beyond Malta. And so in the last few years before her assassination in 2017, her biggest stories were transnational in nature, always linked to the Maltese government, and initially built on the Panama Papers, that massive leak of documents from an offshore law firm in Panama that implicated two members of the Maltese government. And that led to a series of other investigations. The suspected mastermind behind her assassination has been indicted, is now in pretrial detention. Several people have already been convicted for the, the lower-level roles in the crime. Um, the middleman has been given a presidential pardon. And the police believe it was linked to her investigation into a, a concession to build and operate a gas-fired power station in Malta, which has a, a couple of international shareholders. That awful day in October 2017, I mean, it caused shockwaves, obviously, not just through Malta. You still, Maltese people I meet here in Brussels, they're probably still refer to it. You can sense that it's still there in the national psyche so much, but also further afield across the world, it made global headlines. Yeah, I, I think the, the manner in which she was assassinated was, was shocking. So it was through a remote controlled car bomb. That was placed under her car seat and which was detonated just, just outside our family home. So the idea that uh, the country's most famous journalist, who had essentially become the country's main political opposition to the government, as well as it's almost its only investigative body, could be blown up just like that was something that Maltese people just couldn't come to terms with. And then there was the investigation that followed. So there was the manner of the assassination. Then there was what it revealed about Malta's institutions, how rotten everything really was, how dysfunctional. And then it also really it revealed weaknesses within the European Union. So her assassination was a result of the fact that there were no corruption investigations by the authorities into her work. And that was a result of the collapse of, of the rule of law. So the sort of there was no real separation of institutions in Malta. 
the press we discovered had largely been silenced on several key topics due to abusive lawsuits or threats of abusive lawsuits, as well as threats by the government to withhold advertising revenue. Anyway, so it revealed all sorts of problems linked to every single pillar of a democratic society. And then there was also the transnational nature of some of the things that happened to my mother, like the legal threats she faced, as well as the domestic lawsuits that didn't go away after her death. So she was facing 47 libel suits at the time of her death. And these were inherited by by my dad and me and my brothers after her death, when we accepted her estate. And these didn't go away automatically. So that, that was something that we found quite shocking that that resonated in, in quite a powerful way within the European Parliament as well. As you mentioned there, what is really shocking is those number of lawsuits that were outstanding against your mother at the time of her death. And this is where the, the EU angle on this comes in, because since your mother's death, the EU, the European Commission, has come up with a proposal. It's called an anti-slaps directive. Now, slaps is a term that some of our listeners might not be familiar with. It means strategic lawsuits against public participation. And basically, it's those lawsuits that you're describing, lawsuits that are taken to silence criticism or legitimate investigations in the public interest. These are the kind of lawsuits, and as you say yourself, your mother was subject to dozens of those at the time of her death. The European Commission has now come forward with this directive, and it, we saw a parliamentary committee take a stance on it uh, last month. What's your response to the European Commission's anti-slaps proposal? The Commission's proposal was okay, given the fact that the Commission lacks competence in this area. So the Commission doesn't have competence to regulate freedom of expression in member states. So it used a very creative legal basis to come forward with this directive. It linked freedom of expression to the proper functioning of the single market. And it also linked the need to have a harmonized application of how claims for for civil damages are managed across the European Union to support the functioning of the internal market. So it almost used a commercial legal basis to regulate or to protect freedom of expression because it lacks an alternative legal basis. So the result is that the directive wouldn't have helped my mother in most of the cases she faced. Where it would have helped is in cases which which were of a cross-border nature. So she faced, for example, legal threats from London law firms. She faced lawsuits from Maltese businesses and politicians that had an impact on the rest of the European Union. So those would have been subject to the Commission's directive. And this is another very creative thing that the Commission did. It, in its original proposal, it included a language that meant that even if, for example, I was sued in Malta by a Maltese person on a subject that mattered to the rest of the European Union, for example, on, I don't know, a project of European importance or a project that was funded by the European Commission, then the anti-slap directive would apply to my case, even though both parties live and work in the same jurisdiction. This is really important because most of the people who sued my mother were Maltese based in Malta, but on subjects that had European scope, such as transnational corruption and money laundering. The problem is that the 
the councils or the member states deleted that bit. Uh, so now, so now the the council compromise—that's uh, what it's called in Brussels—has language that would mean the directive would only apply if, say, I living in Malta am sued by someone living in Germany, and then only if the claim is manifestly unfounded beyond reasonable doubt which is an incredible threshold. Um, so the commission's original language was manifestly unfounded. The council, so the member states, added beyond reasonable doubt to that. So if you try to think of examples where the directive would apply with that caveat, case the coalition against slaps in Europe found, it would only apply to about 10% of the active slap cases in Europe. So the directive seeks to regulate this big and growing problem in Europe, but in effect would only matter for a tiny minority of these cases. Yeah. So a tiny number of these abusive lawsuits would meet that threshold. Why do you think this has been watered down? Is it the case that EU countries don't want the EU meddling in their legal system? Is that kind of, do you think it's that principle or do you think it's even more insidious that you've got vested interests who have been lobbying hard in their national capitals to try and water this down? So I think there are several factors which which affect the position of different member states. So meddling in national affairs is one of them. So especially the countries which which actually have strong protections for journalists also tend to be very protective of their national competence when it comes to to judicial and home affairs and press freedom. I think an important factor is that member states don't like it when the commission gets creative with its competence. So the fact that it used a sort of commercial legal basis to regulate something that most people would see as as human rights related might have bothered a, a few national governments. But I think ultimately, it's the first reason you mentioned that member states don't like it when the commission tries to accrue greater competence over things that are now seen as national competences. Then there's the fact that member states will be responsible for implementing this directive. So, you know, they are the ones who are going to have to create these mechanisms, train judges, create the national laws that implement this directive. That's a lot of work for some member states, uh, which currently have, you know, a sort of backlog of legislative priorities. So all these factors combined meant that there was a constellation of, of member states who are interested in keeping this directive as as simple, straightforward, and hassle-free for them. Obviously, the directive doesn't mean that member states can't take more ambitious action. But we need something that helps harmonize a strong common standard across the European Union so that a journalist operating in one member state won't have to be worried about being sued in another member state. Mm. So that transnational issue is a big problem. I mean, there's another concern, which is the idea about early dismissal of cases. Maybe you could just explain that to us and and what's at stake there. Sure. So obviously, the, the main purpose of slaps, by definition, is not to win. So a slap is a frivolous, vexatious lawsuit. The aim is to deprive the target of time, resources, and especially to deter others from taking up the same story. So for the claimant, the person who brings the legal case, a slap is effective if it never ends. So early dismissal is a protection against that. 
where a judge would be presented with the claimant's prima facie evidence, you know, the claimant would have to say, would have to prove, yes, look, there is evidence for me to bring this claim. And the journalist or activist who's the target of that claim wouldn't really need to do anything at that stage. So depending on how this is implemented at the national level, in many cases, they wouldn't even need to hire a lawyer. It would it would be the magistrate or judge who assesses this evidence. And if they find that it's it's unfounded or manifestly unfounded beyond reasonable doubt, as the language currently states, then the judge could just dismiss the case. And the journalist wouldn't be dragged to court, wouldn't have to spend any money defending that case. Some member states have these early dismissal systems, and it's extremely effective. The United States also has this. So what happened with the commission proposal is that there, there was pretty good language on early dismissal. It's now been watered down by the member states. One problem is that the commission put in language that would allow national courts to award compensation to targets of abusive lawsuits. For me, this is extremely important, not because journalists absolutely need compensation, but as a form of deterrent. So my mother, in one case, faced 19 defamation lawsuits from a single person on more or less the same topic. And he actually told my mother over the phone that he did it because he can. He can afford to open 19 separate lawsuits. He can afford to pay a lawyer to prosecute these 19 separate cases. And in the end, if my mother had won these cases, in the end, they were withdrawn. It would have come at an enormous cost. So just, just the court fees alone for my mother to respond to the cases were about 7,000 euros. So she had to pay 7,000 euros up front or she would have automatically lost the cases. And then she had to hire a lawyer to represent her 19 separate cases. Um, so even if they were totally unfounded, totally frivolous, she would have never got that money. You know, most of that money would have never come back to her. So the idea of including a provision on compensation would have meant that this person would have taught twice. If a judge found that these 19 cases were all frivolous, then he would have had to pay an enormous sum in compensation to my mother. And so instead of weakening my mother, he would have actually strengthened her. He would have actually been giving her money. And that's that's such an important component of any any effective anti-slap law, because it means that it would kill off abusive lawsuits as a strategy. So that's a bit actually quite disappointing that that's been weakened. There's also a, a really important distinction between a manifestly unfounded lawsuit and an abusive lawsuit. Manifestly unfounded means there's absolutely no basis. There's no evidence for that lawsuit. There's just no case to be answered. Whereas an abusive lawsuit could be based on something that could be considered defamatory, but the, the lawsuit or number of lawsuits is completely disproportionate. So if, for example, a journalist publishes something that accidentally publishes something that turns out to be untrue, and is suddenly faced by a spate of lawsuits in several different jurisdictions by the subject of that article, that's an abusive lawsuit. It's not necessarily unfounded, but journalists should also be offered protection from that kind of litigation. Because there were my mother, for example, faced cases where the claimant didn't, you know, didn't even ask for a correction or a right of reply, but simply 
for public reasons, you know, because most of these claimants or politicians rush to the court and open lawsuits for something that actually could have been cleared up over a phone call. So that's an abusive lawsuit. And and those should be covered under the scope of the directive as well. A very vivid reminder of the reality facing journalists, obviously not just in Malta, right across Europe. I can think of some examples myself where this kind of attempt to effectively muzzle the free press is something that media have to deal with day in, day out. So look, going forward now, there's obviously negotiations going to be going on on this piece of legislation between the Parliament and the Council and the Commission. What would you like to see finally in this and and any hopes for anything more positive that might come out of it over the next few months? With the European Parliament, we have a huge ally. They're interested in a very strong directive. The Parliament is actually not absolutely happy with the Commission's first proposal. The Council compromise is a step in the complete opposite direction. So the Parliament is is ready to negotiate hard, as far as I can see, for a much stronger version of this directive. This is actually a topic which, it's one of those things which is extremely important to several sectors of society, but touches on journalists and activists in particular. So to mount a public campaign on something like this is actually quite challenging. So if we don't get a strong directive now, then we've missed the boat and we'll have to start campaigning at the national level for strong national laws to protect journalists from abusive lawsuits. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us on EU Confidential. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Now, we did reach out to the Commission to seek comment on these criticisms. In a statement, Commission Vice President Vera Jourova said that throughout this process, the Commission has worked closely with many stakeholders, including journalists and civil society. She said she's ready to work with the co-legislators, that's the Council and the Parliament, to find the best solutions to deliver strong results and clear rules that will help protect journalists like Daphne who were faced with these lawsuits. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. If you like the podcast, please do make sure you're following us and maybe even leave a rating or a review. If you want to get in touch with our team directly, you can email us at podcast at politico.eu. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Thanks this week to Julia Poloni and our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez. See you next week.